This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar Modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in their Texas-based 200-megawatt facility and serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications. Adhering to the strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform their competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's high-power, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, the hidden story behind a controversial power line in the Northeast, how the quest for more clean energy fueled a 50-year struggle over racism, land rights, billions of dollars, international law, and good old-fashioned respect. We've got a reporter with us who unearthed this story after years of covering the Northern Pass Transmission Project and after months of reporting. Then Cape Wind is dead. We'll have a eulogy. And finally, that tax bill again. It's messier than anyone thought possible. And I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions there in D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hi. And Jigger Shaw is in D.C. as well. He's the uh, president of Generate Capital. How's it going? Good. You know, we try to be very practical here on the Energy Gang, but we often speak conceptually, too. And one common example, you often hear people talk about the need for more transmission to connect renewables to regions where they're needed and to smooth out variability on the grid. This, of course, is the very core of Mark Jacobson's 100% wind, water, and solar scenario. And in order to hit that vision, we need a massive build-out of high-voltage transmission lines. But when you jump out of academic modeling and into the real world, it is never simple. And that brings us to the Northern Pass Transmission Project. This week's guest knows all about the messiness of building energy infrastructure in the name of clean energy. Sam Evans-Brown is the host of Outside In, a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio about the natural world and how we use it. Sam just wrapped up an eight-month reporting journey with his colleague Hannah McCarthy on this intensely controversial transmission project that would, if built, bring a gigawatt of hydro from northern Quebec into the northeast U.S. Uh, But this story really isn't about a power line. It's about the decades-long struggle over the power that feeds into that line, a struggle between English-speaking Canadians, French Canadians, the indigenous people there, and the corporations that want that land and water. The four-part series called Power Line details the saga. Sam joins us from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, so excited to be here. Yeah, congrats on this series. It's fantastic. I'm glad you liked it. It was a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, I totally binged on it. Everybody should listen to it. It is a wonderful series. Indeed. So we'll link to that in the show notes, um, and let's talk about it. First things first, I want to set the stage. What is the Northern Pass Transmission Project? This has consumed you and the state of New Hampshire for years. Yeah, so, so I started working here in the fall of 2011. The project itself was proposed in the spring of 2011. So it has uh, been going on for literally my entire career as a journalist. Uh, and I was sort of put on to the, the energy, and environment, energy and environment beat in 2012. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. So covering the Northern Pass is kind of how I learned the trade. Uh, and it has been quite a journey. I mean, it started out uh, in in one form, just a completely sort of traditional power line, uh, entirely overland and overhead. Uh, you know, twenty uh, it was going to be twelve hundred megawatts at first, and then because of the pushback from environmental groups and this sort of prolonged chess game that has unfolded over over you know the better part of a decade, it has changed twice. They've they've undergrounded portions of it. They've had to shrink it down to to a thousand megawatts. Uh, and it's the prices, the cost of the project has gone up over the years as the revisions have come in. And so so watching this whole thing develop and watching the sort of opposition to it in New Hampshire develop has been basically the story of my career. And to cap it off by going up uh, to, to see the source of the power has been has been just fascinating. So talking to folks in Massachusetts who are familiar with this procurement process, and I think they're in about six weeks, they'll have a decision. There are several different 
projects that are being considered. One is the Northern Pass. One is a main project. One is through Vermont. One is with Eversource and one is with National Grid. One of those will win and the rest will lose. Now, some of these are have similar resources that they're bringing through Hydro-Quebec and wind from Ontario. But Northern Pass, in fact, may not be chosen for this project, correct? Yeah. In fact, there are two opportunities for Northern Pass to not happen. The first is this Massachusetts procurement um, in which there are five power lines competing and a couple of uh, sort of different types of projects that we sort of don't need to get into. But there's, you know, as you mentioned, there's one through Vermont. There's two in New Hampshire, one uh, by National Grid, which is, is competing very directly with Northern Pass. Um, and then there's one in Maine, and then there's an actually there's actually an undersea project by that's being developed by Amera that would go up to the Canadian Maritimes, connecting to the Churchill Falls and Muskrat Falls hydro projects, uh, which have also been incredibly controversial. Um, so, so that's the first opportunity for Northern Pass to get, uh, or the first stumbling block for Northern Pass, because they've said that if they don't win this Massachusetts procurement, they'll have to reevaluate as to whether the project uh, can still happen. The second is there's just the state permitting process, uh, which will come a month later, the decision as to whether the state will allow the project to be built. Um, so, so it's really, I mean, two huge hurdles for the project to get over. Uh, and, and whereas in 2011, when this was, this was announced, I mean, New Hampshire had just come through these wave elections, uh, and, and the New Hampshire had a climate action plan, Massachusetts had the Global Warming Solutions Act. It sort of seemed like a perfect time when this thing was announced versus today. Now it has four competitors, uh, and, and a very different political landscape to contend with. Okay, so for this series, rather than focus on the end point, the transmission line itself, which has taken up so much of your reporting time, you decided to work your way up that line all the way to northern Quebec and find the source of the electrons that are planned for that line. This 36 gigawatts of Canadian hydropower supplied by Hydro-Quebec, is is one of the biggest such resources in the world. And it's a great source of pride for French Canadians. And it was harnessed as a direct result of the racism and oppression that Francophones felt many decades ago. Um, so explain the origins of this massive pool of hydropower that's sitting and waiting to go into the northeastern market. Yeah, so the modern iteration of Hydro-Quebec was born in 1962 after a special election, a snap election that was called in the province. And the sole issue that that this campaign was based on was whether or not to nationalize all of the hydroelectricity uh, plants in, in the province. And, you know, <laughs> it's it's funny to think about. I mean, can you imagine when was the last time you heard about an election where energy was the only issue on the ballot? Uh, it's really it's really kind of a one of a kind historical moment. Well, well, we, we're so sucked into the energy world. Energy is often the only thing on the ballot for, <laughs> for many of us and our <laughs> listeners. But beyond that, you're right. Yeah. So so what happened was, I mean, for for you know, generations, really, uh, French Canadians had felt like an oppressed people after after the conquest of the the of French Canada by the British. And in fact, there was there was this report in the colonial era called the Durham Report that called French Canadians a people without history or culture and, and sort of recommended that the, the that all French Canadians be sort of assimilated uh, forcibly through through, you know, the, the means that many times called cultures are assimilated, uh, ensuring that French isn't spoken in schools and uh, that the main language become English. Uh, and so, so in reaction to that oppression that they felt, there was a politics of, of sort of like French Canadianness that was born in uh, in the 20th century, and and that came to a head uh, with with a man named René Lévesque, who, as environment minister, proposed nationalizing uh, Canadian hydroelectricity or Qu- Quebecois hydroelectricity. As a way to create good French-speaking jobs, let's let's create this big hydropower company where the job sites will all be in French. The foremen will be speaking French, uh, and and uh, and in that way, you know, French uh, French workers and engineers will have a corporation where they can rise through the ranks and and gain economic power. And so that was the the question in 1962. Uh, the the 
the party in question won the election. Uh, Hydro-Quebec was born. And uh, and immediately afterward, they began this this incredible boom of building these massive hydroelectric projects. Uh, the, the the there were two mega projects that were launched: the Manic Utard project, which was on the sort of north shore of the St. Lawrence, uh, and then immediately after the James Bay, which just to 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 put this in context of the size, the James Bay is an area the the drainage for this these for these reservoirs is the size of France. And the highway that they built in order to access the, these work sites was 620 kilometers long, which is like building I, – I, in my brain, this is how I have it figured out. It's like building a highway from New Hampshire to Delaware for the purpose of cr- constructing these dams. Incredible. So if you're a graduate student doing your thesis on Canadian hydropower, uh, Sam is your guy to go to. I couldn't have done a better job reading a Wikipedia page explaining that history. It's really fascinating. Fascinating. And, you know, as you detail in the story, after uh, Northern, after um, Hydro-Quebec is founded and they start to leverage these resources, there are others who felt the oppression, just as the French Canadians were showing their strength with hydropower. And the, the First Nations, such as the Cree, the Inuit, and the Pessimit, suddenly had their land stripped away from them without warning. So what happened when those first dams went up? So it's it's really important to understand that that as this hydroelectric infrastructure was being constructed there was there were also other government policies that were aimed at getting First Nations people off of their traditional territories, these huge um, winter hunting and trapping grounds that they range across or they you know during the during the uh, during the winter months. They they head inland to to gather furs uh, and then bring them back to the coast where they would sell them in the summer. And this was the this had been the rhythm that had been established ever since the colonial uh, folks arrived and the fur trade became established. And you know the Canadian government and the Quebec government were were pushing to send native people to schools, and so kids were expected to be in school during the winter. Uh, there, there was they had been confined to reservations, just like in the United States, and they were expected to sort of stay within the bounds of those reservations. But there wasn't a lot of hard power being exerted to keep people off their their traditional territory. And so there were still a lot of folks who would say, you know, dump their kids at the the residential school during the during the winter and then they would still head inland to to hunt and trap all winter. And these people were not notified that these hydroelectric projects were being constructed. And so I heard stories from elders who who were able to remember the year that they started heading up river in in the fall and they sort of came around the river bend and saw that there was just a massive work site underway on this river that their families had been commuting up and down literally for thousands of years. And wasn't that considered illegal to them? That that was their position. Well, that that is certainly their position. I think the so so the question of who owns that land in a lot of place in a lot of parts of Canada is still an open question, um, because as the as the British came in. Uh, they began to sign treaties that, you know, we can recognize many of them were very problematic, but treaties that created sort of a paper trail that uh, that a judge can point to and say, hey, look, you relinquished your land to us uh, back in the 1700s. In Quebec and the Maritime Provinces, that never happened because the French didn't didn't engage in those sort of treaties. They would they would sign agreements that said, "Hey, we can coexist on this land," uh, and that was the understanding of the First Nations in Quebec and, and the Canadian Maritimes. So, um, so certainly the 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 Quebec government and the Canadian government considered considered the land they're building these hydro projects on to be crown land, to be their land. But the native people can point to the fact that there has never, they have never given up their rights to that land and say, hey, you know, we had some sort of agreement here that you, you have never, you've never come to us to say, how should we work this out? And that was certainly the case of the Pessimate Innu, um, which is the, the community that, that have the, the Manic Utard mega project on their traditional territory. 
So that was certainly the case uh, of the Crees, uh, who hosted the second project, the James Bay mega project. And uh, the difference is that the pessimist they they didn't um, they never they never lawyered up. They never hired lawyers to contest the construction of the Manic Utard mega project. The the Crees, when they heard that the James Bay was being constructed, they immediately uh, sprung into action. They they uh, united all of the the nine Cree communities up in the James Bay region. They hired lawyers, they filed an injunction, and they actually successfully got work stopped on the the first dam. So that brings us to the the broader negotiations from these First Nations. And, you know, when the pessimist got screwed over by Hydro-Quebec, I think they got $150,000 for their land. Um, other First Nations were put on alert as more of these dams were planned. And, you know, they started banding together, fighting for their land rights, and eventually the government and First Nations signed this James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, which was a landmark settlement for indigenous people in Canada. Uh, Sam, why was this such an important development? Well, so as we as we talked about, you know, there were no treaties signed by the French in the in Quebec and the Canadian Maritimes. And also the Canadian government had stopped making treaties um, as it marched westward. Uh, so you look at British Columbia and there there are no treaties signed in, in that area as well. And so there are these big swaths of Canada where who owns the land was still an open question. And this question of indigenous title hadn't been settled. Uh, and so the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement was called the first modern treaty, and it was the first time that Canada really sat down and hashed this out. Uh, and they they delineated the rights that uh, the Cree Nation and the Inuit uh, had over this this huge territory of of the James Bay, um, and and so that became the model that all other subsequent negotiations followed. There's now this uh, comprehensive land claims process that that uh, First Nations everywhere go through. And if you, you know, you can see the, the, the whole, the province of Nunavut uh, was born out of this process. Uh, and there, there are other First Nations that have gone through it as well. And it just shows that, that this was the first time that this kind of thing had happened. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, we can see that. So the Pessimist uh, signed an agreement with, with uh, Hydro-Quebec just two years before the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement was negotiated. And, and you know, they received, uh, in exchange for all damages, past, present, and future, uh, done to their traditional territory, their traditional hunting and fishing rights, um, they received 150000 Canadian dollars. And then two years later, the Cree and the Inuit got $235 million <laughs> for the same type of, of damages on their, their territory. So there's this, there's this really sharp delineation, but, uh, sort of everything that, all the agreements that happened after the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement and all the ones that happened before. Yeah, it seems that just working with folks in other provinces, policy folks, that First Nations are top of mind, that this is now hardwired into all the policies that are moving forward on energy. Is that what, is that what you would see now happening? Yeah, and and there were there were many other court victories that followed the initial the initial injunction that the Cree Nation filed against Hydro Quebec, um, and and a really important one happened in two thousand four, which actually made it sort of a constitutional duty for corporations to consult and accommodate uh, First Nations whenever they develop a project on their traditional territories. Uh, so that's now that's now law that is now codified. But there are still First Nations who have these legacy projects on their on their land uh, that have you know, don't have never got satisfaction and continue to be very upset about that. I, you know, I wonder sometimes whether some of this history, while extraordinarily valuable, is sort of par for the course. I mean, this really happened in sort of the 1970s. Wasn't this sort of the way in which mineral rights and things like these were done, whether it's in the United States or other places around the world in the 1970s? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the case. And that is, in fact, Hydro-Quebec's defense. I mean, the pessimist in you are currently suing Hydro-Quebec, the, the Canadian government and the Quebec government, over the Manic-Utard project. Uh, and, and they're saying that this $150,000 deal that they signed back in 1973 was, in fact, illegal. Um, so Hydro-Quebec's defense in this case is, is this is the way, this is, these were the laws on the books at the time. We're just, 
we're just doing things the way things were done back then and and we've changed we don't do this we don't do things this way anymore um but but you know we don't have a time machine we can't go back and change change the past i mean it 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 appears to me like when you think about all the big dams that were built in the united states mainly in the great depression um you know, a lot of those things, I'm sure, didn't follow protocol for Native Americans in the United States. It just, you know, it's not to suggest that the complexity um, isn't real and the, and, and the, you know, sort of taking advantage of people isn't real. But it does feel like we've just gotten a lot better over the last 40 or 50 years in this area. Um, and it's one of those things where, I mean, I think about fracking today. And how much regulation is, you know, or lack thereof is on fracking. And it's it's what the minerals industry requires, I think, to be able to continue to sort of power our modern way of living. So that's a really interesting question. And I think Hydro-Quebec would point to their modern projects because they're still building these huge dams today. And they would say, look, here's how we do things differently. Here's how we do it better. Um, and what they do now is they reach out to communities beforehand. They're, they're offering compensation right off the bat. They're, they're changing the projects uh, based on the, the requests of native populations. So up in, they, they developed the, the, the Rupert River. Uh, they d- diverted uh, seven. 70% of the flow of the Rupert River so that it would flow into the original James Bay project. And one of the things that, that <laughs> this sort of fascinating story, uh, they they sat down with all the tallymen, and the tallymen are the Cree trappers who who control these these uh, trap lines, these, these territories for hunting and fishing. They decide who gets to hunt, who gets to trap, how many animals to take each year. They sat down with the tallymen, and the tallymen said, well, you know, your project is going to flood X amount of land. The best land is really this spot right here that you're going to flood. Would it be possible to to flood slightly less? Hey, here's an idea. Maybe instead of building a dam really high, maybe you could dig a tunnel and divert the water through a tunnel into your turbines that way. And and that actually wound up being the way that the East Main project was done. Um, so. So, you know, Hydro-Quebec would say that we can still do these big projects uh, as long as we're accommodating local populations. Um I would say that that when you when you talk to these local populations, there's still a great deal of acrimony that comes uh, after the construction. It's just that uh, they can get enough support so that the so that the project will go through. Yeah, your last podcast, I thought uh, the last one in the series was very clear on this. It's it it didn't feel like Hydro Quebec was willing to sort of say we're just not going to build this dam because. It's just too disruptive to your way of life. It's more like, how much do we have to pay? And the the and the First Nations were sort of like, we know the train's coming through, so here's how much you have to pay us. Yeah, like we'll get what we can um, because we don't think that we can actually put a stop to it. So the band council and the chief of the community that's hosting the the newest project, the Romaine, they were opposed to the construction, but but his community voted and 80 percent of them said said we want to take a deal. Um, so it's hard to know what's in the mind of each of those community members. You know, did they think? Are they thinking, you know, hey, you know, the traditional way of life was great, but it's time to embrace modernity? Are they thinking, you know, it's going to get built no matter what, so let's just take the money? Uh, but regardless of, of what it is that, that each person is thinking, you know, overwhelmingly that community said, let's, let's cut a deal. So the start of your podcast series was really around this new transmission line that was going to come down from Hydro-Quebec and this broader vision of decarbonization, right? I mean, that the Northeast United States is very committed to decarbonizing all the way to New York, which was also covered in your uh, series. And it feels like that's still going to happen, right? First Nations are not these issues are that, politics or whatever, that ultimately the Northeast recognizes that they pay so much for electricity. They've got tons of cheap electricity up north, and the ends justify the means. Yeah, I would say that um, the, basically you talk to policymakers here, and they'll say that, you know, citing issues, quote unquote, like the types of things that we've been talking about in the, in the series with, with the First Nations and in terms of the environmental impacts of hi- large hydroelectric projects in Canada, those are for the province to decide for themselves. 
once they have figured out what they want to build, uh, it's then it's then our decision as to whether to connect to that, right? So so that's basically the policy of of New England. It's like, you know, Canada can figure itself out and then whatever they want to sell to us, we're happy to take advantage of that. The question then is is how do you take advantage of that? Uh, what is the the actual route for a new power line? And that's that's the question that will basically get sorted out through the procurement that we talked about at the top of the show. So let's bring this back to Northern Pass. Here I am in Massachusetts, and uh, we could be getting a lot of hydropower in Mass if Northern Pass wins this bid. If that happens, should I be turning on my lights and feeling guilty about this long history of oppression and confusion and conflict over land rights? <laughs> I think the amount of guilt that each person feels when they flick on their lights is, is uh, you know, <laughs> it's up to them. I mean, you can also feel guilty about uh, about mountaintop removal and, and fugitive methane emissions if you want to, considering that 60% of our power is coming from natural gas. Uh, and occasionally the coal plants do still tick on uh, when it's really cold or really hot. So, you know... <sighs> I would say that whether or not Northern Pass gets approved, one of these power lines will. Uh, so so th- certainly the amount of, of Canadian hydropower coming into the New England grid is going to increase sub- substantially in, in the next three years. Um, the, how you feel about that power, you know... I think I think that we got a little bit of pushback from the energy efficiency community, basically saying that we should have focused more on on how few impacts there are to, to energy efficiency. Uh, you know, if if you're feeling guilty, uh, feel free to feel free to jump on the bandwagon there and uh, <laughs> insulate your home. You know, buy some LEDs and and et cetera. And you know, you weren't making a specific judgment about any type of resource, and you reflect on this at the end of the series in um, what I think is a very effective meditative way. And that is that there are all these hidden stories, these deep histories, um, local and regional stories behind the resources that we harness and that we use. And that, you know, for every resource that someone loves, you're going to find someone else who really despises it for any number of reasons or uh, can find any number of drawbacks. So this really isn't about passing a judgment on hydropower per se. It's just about recognizing that there's, you know, there's a consequence to everything. Yeah. And I'd say if there's one lesson that I would try to impart to the sort of clean energy wonk audience that I imagine is listening to the energy gang, it's that it's it's very easy, I think, in the energy community to dismiss opposition as nimbies or to say that, that you know, they're going to be opposed to anything you, you, you come up with. Um, but it's it's really important to understand that there are there are that the history behind each of these projects informs the the entirety of of the opposition. So so you really can't understand uh, native opposition to hydropower in Canada without understanding the legacy of colonialism. Uh, and similarly, you know, if you wanted to develop terrestrial wind in New England, which has been incredibly controversial. It's, it's going to be very difficult to get that done without understanding the history of the community that you want to build it in and the types of projects that they have found acceptable in the past and the, the, the types of interactions that they've had with developers in the past. So, uh, you know, I think, I think basically what, what we're trying to get across in this podcast is that uh, context matters and, and that, you know, you can, you can build all the clean energy models you want, um, but, but until you understand the facts on the ground of where you want to, inst- to build a project, uh, you're, you're not going to understand the types of obstacles you're going to come up against. It was, a, it was a great series, and I think it provided that contextualization that we all needed to understand the, the entire story of this project that ends up or will could end up in Ma- all the way in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, so just wrapping up, the last question I have is around the framing that I started out the show with, which is like, we're having this debate about the use of transmission to build out a massively renewable grid. And Mark Jacobson, the guy who's um, the major proponent and researcher behind this 100% renewable energy scenario, basically thinks that we can do it by building out a bunch of high voltage DC transmission lines around the country. 
And, um, you know, when you, when you get into the real world and you go into a place like New England where there's this deep culture of conservation and there's a lot of opposition to projects like this, you realize, well, damn, this isn't so easy. And then when you think about what's on the other end of that power line, it gets even more complicated. So any thoughts on the context of this within the debate about this massively renewable grid that we're all talking about? Yeah, it's it's actually funny. We we tried a couple of times to to figure out how we wanted to report uh, on Northern Pass on the on our podcast because we have a, a national audience, uh, but we are from New Hampshire, and so we knew we had to do some sort of story about about the power line. And and in one of these sort of aborted attempts to figure out how to cover the story, uh, it, I was looking at this frame of like, how do you get. Uh, how do you build these big transmission lines given uh, on the ground opposition? And I actually called Mark Jacobson because because I had seen his studies and was curious to hear what he had to say about like, okay, how do you get this done? And he had a very unsatisfying response, which was essentially, hey, if you just educate people about the value of clean energy, eventually they'll support these types of projects, which just struck me as so deeply, uh, deeply ignorant of, of like how, how, where the opposition to these projects was actually coming from um, and and you know uh, that that I think is is something that a lot of clean energy advocates are afflicted with is they they just think that if everyone understood the importance of of building these things then then the opposition would melt away uh, you know and and it is just it's just sort of ignorant of of history which is which is a lot of times where opposition is coming from Sam Evans Brown is the host of Outside In, a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. You can go to outsideinradio.org to listen to the Powerline series or just to subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. Congrats on the series. Thanks again for coming on and talking about it and uh, highly recommend it to folks. So thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. You know, life goals here, getting on the Energy Gang. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, an American solar manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. What does it take to build American-quality solar modules? Well, they've got to be high power, and they've got to be tough, just like the Texans who make them. James Whittemore, the quality manager at Mission Solar Energy, makes sure the company is sticking to its high standards, and he gets to do it in his own backyard. I am a Texan, born and raised in Austin. Whittemore talks about solar with respect. Sure, photovoltaics are an elegant technology, but keeping them rugged and long-lasting, that's serious business. I I can't think of any other product that has to be extremely durable and be exposed to the damaging effects of the sun for 25 plus years. That's That's a very tall order. Put a Texan up to the challenge, though, and they can handle it. Mission Solar runs its modules through the most intense reliability testing, like thermal cycling, accelerated aging, and thousands of hours of damp heat. And in every case, Mission's modules have performed three times better than the industry average. But that's just the start. So for our novel outside-of-the-box testing methods, we decided to shoot our module with a flamethrower or run it over with an armored vehicle. It was a ton of fun, and you can see that we're actually performed outstandingly well. You can actually watch these tests at Mission Solar's website. They are pretty cool. In thermal cycling tests, Mission Solar panels are independently tested to withstand 600 extreme temperature cycles from negative 40 to 85 degrees Celsius, which means you can hit them with a flamethrower. So that's definitely the day that you're coming into work. Uh, exactly. Mission Solar, an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's American-made, high-power modules, and to watch those tests, go to missionsolar.com. So, Jigger had to leave us to go to a board meeting, and we're going to move on, Catherine and I are going to move on to another controversial source of energy in the Northeast, Cape Wind. The developer just announced that it is relinquishing its lease. The project, which was once billed as America's first offshore wind farm, is no more. Cape Wind was planned more than 15 years ago in the earliest days of the offshore wind industry. At that time, there were only a handful of small commercial projects in, in operation, mostly in Europe. But today, there's around 15 gigawatts of offshore wind. It's a real industry. Cape Wind was, again, supposed to be the first offshore wind project in America. 
but a perfect storm of wealthy local opponents, siting problems, and falling natural gas prices ultimately led to its downfall. And today, offshore wind activity is blossoming elsewhere in the U.S., so Cape Wind may never get built, but it does provide some valuable experiences that other offshore wind developers are building off of. Catherine, what do you think the legacy of Cape Wind is? Yeah, when you have the Cokes and the Kennedys both fighting against something, uh, it's never going to succeed. Uh, yeah, so it was it was a real slog for the people involved in it. I think over that period of time, the industry has had a chance to develop more efficient technologies, has been able to do more farther out on the continental shelf. So whereas the Cape Wind project, you could see from the islands, the projects that are now under consideration are 15 to 20 miles out of the islands, 30 miles out from the mainland. And right now there is a brand new project that three companies are bidding on. The bids are due December 20th, so just around the corner. One is Dong, which is Bay State Wind, Vineyard Wind, and Deepwater. And these three are all bidding, and they could be between 400 and 800 megawatts. Um, The governor signed in 1,600 megawatts by 2027. So it's going to happen. I think they've learned a lot, sadly, from a project that didn't happen. Yeah, the um, the story certainly didn't end the way Jim Gordon, the guy behind the project, imagined it. But that doesn't mean it's like a tale of tragedy for the entire industry. You pointed out that there's a lot of activity going forward right now, and there have been a number of positive developments for offshore wind since that project was first announced. Um You know, the federal government under the Obama administration established a leasing process for offshore wind development, which was in large part spurred to assist with building the industry off of the back of Cape Wind. States got more sophisticated in their leasing and siting processes. There are better interagency reviews now. When Cape Wind was going through the process, it was like no one really you know, no one really understood, like, the number of complications that the project would face. And no one now wants to repeat the lesson of Cape Wind. The technology got so much better, too. So now you can site projects further off of land, which influences the regulatory process as well. And the blocks of ocean set aside for development um, are not as susceptible to nimbyism because they're so much further offshore. And that, of course, is what killed Cape Wind and brought together these um, strange bedfellows, so to speak, to oppose the project. Meanwhile, costs have come down so dramatically. Um, Offshore wind projects in the UK now are rivaling natural gas there. Um, You know, they're still double the cost of onshore projects, but they are coming down very quickly. And this is good for New England ratepayers because more projects are eventually going to get built and they're going to come in way cheaper. Um, you know, we're getting to know more information about the impact on fishing and wildlife. And we actually see that offshore wind projects can improve tourism in, um, in areas in Europe. And there are just now bigger pocketed investors like Shell, Siemens, Orsted, the company formerly known as Dong, and infrastructure investors like Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. They're all pouring and into Stato the And Statoil. And Statoil, right. Statoil is a huge, huge investor, big believer in this, and an early investor in offshore wind. So that's just um, some of the changes that have happened in the last five years. And I would argue that some of this has to do with Cape Wind directly. You know, we have Cape Wind to thank for that. Yeah, I think so. And I also say bravo to Rhode Island for doing the Block Island project, because even though they could see it, they proved we can just do this. Uh, They got the permission of the community and a lot of support. And I think that really helped a little bit uh, unplug the dike. Well, certainly a lot has changed. And we will follow some of the projects that are currently being bid on right now here in the U.S. And it's a lot of European companies now eyeing America as a booming or potentially booming offshore wind market. So on to the tax bill as our closer, this beautiful mess of a tax bill. Oh, wait, I actually take that back. There's nothing beautiful about it. It's a straight up nasty mess of a tax bill. Republicans have been scrambling behind closed doors on a plan to supposedly reform the tax code. But instead of reform, we're getting a confusing jumble of changes that 
you know, do nothing to simplify the tax code and instead cost a trillion and a half dollars and do very little to grow the economy, according to the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. Because of the numerous ways this will impact the energy sector, it is worth revisiting as the House and Senate prepare to conference the bill. We've spent a couple of shows talking about um, the provisions in this bill, but it's worth revisiting because here we are at the doorstep of a passage. Since we mentioned it last week, the Senate officially passed their bill, and it actually makes things worse for renewable energy tax credit. These changes center around the alternative minimum tax, which essentially makes the production tax credit useless or less valuable for a lot of investors. Catherine, can you please explain this? It's a little confusing for those of us who are not tax experts. (laughs) Sure. I am also not a tax expert, but what you want is an alternative minimum tax that is different from your corporate tax rate so that there's space in between to be able to monetize your production tax credit. And right now the AMT and corporate rate are at 20%. So basically you would not be able to use a PTC at all. But there are a lot of other industries that are opposed to this as well, because a lot of other people have to monetize different tax credits. So the Chamber of Commerce is opposed to this, the National Association of Manufacturers. There are lots and lots of industries that are affected. So I think this is definitely going to change. And the folks on the House side said we had no idea this was coming. The reason it was put in and the Senate sides were very last minute was because they could raise some money by doing this. And raising revenue was going to be important for being able to put other credits back into their package. And they thought they would raise about $40 billion and ended up being – uh, $300 billion because of all the industries they were affecting. So I think that's going to change. The key is going to be the tax, the corporate tax rate has to be different from the AMT. And the corporate rate, they may have some play in because Trump even has said that 22% would be okay with him. So if they make the corporate rate 22%, then the AMT needs to be 15% or lower, say between 10 and 12% to really allow for that space for the PTC and for other industries to participate. So I think you'll see that happening. The other issues, though, that are still really important are very specific to renewables. One is the House language um, on safe harbor and inflation adjustment that affect both the PTC and ITC. And then this also, this base erosion anti-abuse tax, the BEAT proposal, that needs to be changed as well in order for the PTC to really have tax equity come in. So... These are all things that are in negotiation. They're, it's a moving target right now. They have named conferees in both the House and Senate, uh, the Republican conferees, and there are about 10 on each side. They're not going to get in the room with 20 people and try to resolve all these issues. They will check in with all of these conferees to make sure that all of their needs are being met and that the co- overarching conference needs are met. Because remember, they have to pass this with only GOP support because the Democrats will not vote for the ta- the tax bill at all. So they're having to figure out how do we come up with something that's going to work by the end of this coming week. So they will probably be able to finish their conference at the end of next week. They also have to keep the government open this week, and they'll kick the can down the road a couple of times on that so that the week of the 20th, they can take the tax bill back on the floor of the House and Senate. And they have to be very sure that they're going to get the votes to do it. Remember, the Senate was very close, and some of the provisions in the Senate bill are going to lose a lot of votes in the House unless they change those. So there are lots and lots of issues they need to resolve in this bill. I still think something's going to get through. So so, something will get through, and that's something we just really don't know. We don't know what it is. Uh, Clearly, the AMT, the alternative minimum tax issue, will probably get changed because it would raise taxes on so many different industries, right? Right, right. Absolutely. And I think if the Senate can hold tough on the House provisions on the PTC, we're very hopeful that those will drop out. And we just need to resolve some issues with the beat. And those are being negotiated now. So we seem the Senate side, the Senate folks who are really pro-wind have been, the GOP folks have been very helpful. And industry has been working very closely with them to make sure that some of that um, the nuances are of that provision are put in so that a lot of projects aren't put in jeopardy. But remember, when they not everybody knows how this bill and the people who wrote this these bills don't know how it's going to really roll out. So as soon as this is put into place, as soon as this bill plat passes, next year they're going to have to start doing technical correction. So they will have to go back 
probably over the next year and try to make corrections as as this bill and all these different interlocking provisions start spinning out. Because a lot of what you don't know when you start changing the entire tax code is how everything is going to interact. So I think there are going to be opportunities for corrections in the coming months. The issue is you don't want something to get into this final bill that is very damaging to the industry. Meanwhile, Texas Senator John Cornyn snuck a last-minute provision into the Senate bill that would indefinitely preserve the tax advantage status of master limited partnerships, which are this form of public corporation that helps oil and gas companies invest in infrastructure. Renewables don't qualify. They never have. Chris Coons has introduced a bill a number of times, and the Senate just hasn't taken up the issue. So what is going on with this MLP stuff? Uh, A favor for the oil and gas industry. Yeah, and remember, this Coons bill was not just Senator Coons. Senator Moran from Kansas has been very involved in this as well. So this has all been a very bipartisan effort. I think that there are some provisions that in later iterations might have to be cleaned up and revisited. There may be some opportunities for MLPs, for credits, the orphans, if they don't get into this, there may be some even energy storage credit to get in later technical iterations of a tax bill. I just think right now this is just a, a such a big piece that if you don't already have a very solid position, it's going to be really hard to get something in. All right. That's enough for taxes. I think we can conclude that uh, this is still in flux. It is messy as hell. And we're still unsure what will make it into the final package. Let's talk about something that we do know, or actually something that others don't know and we want to share with them. So, Catherine, tell me something I don't know. Yeah, so this is a little bit building on the conversation that we had with Sam and the First Nations, and that is that our Secretary of Interior and President have decided to scale back on the Antiquities Act and to try to... Um, cut out millions of acres from national monuments. The specific ones they've announced so far are Bears Ears, and that's 1.1 million acres that they want to cut back on that national monument, and Grand Staircase Escalante, which is 800,000 acres. So the Bears Ears, that's like 85% of that Antiquities Act monument, and it's 46% of Grand Staircase Escalante, which is part of that national monument. Now, this provision was put into law in 1906 to prevent looting of Native American sites and all of their historic um, grounds that they had. So this, again, goes back to sort of the First Nations, who was here first. And that was preventing more harm from being done since 1906 has prevented commercialization and mineral exploration on those lands that are really considered historic and precious to those tribes and nations. The last time the Antiquities Act, any monument was scaled back was under Kennedy, and it was a very tiny amount. So this is an enormous move on the part of Secretary Zinke. Secretary Zinke said, no one loves their public lands more than I do. You can love them as much, but not more than I do. Well, he's showing that these millions of acres that they're cutting back of these national monuments are going to be used for energy exploration, mining, motorized vehicles, and they're not stopping here. They're looking at other uh, national monuments as well. So this is just showing another move that uh, the administration is doing to scale back on um, parks and public lands. Mm, Yeah, and he's picking up phrases from Trump. Nobody loves lands more than I do. Nobody loves women more than I do. Oh, God. And Patagonia, the clothing company and gear company, is planning on suing the Trump administration. So I know a lot of nature lovers who are probably going to be buying Patagonia this holiday season in support. Yes, I definitely went on their website. <laughs> um, but I uh, definitely think this is going to, there are going to be a lot of things tied up in court for a while, but I assume that some of this is going to go forward regardless. And, you know, unless they can get a restraining order uh, on those lands, that, that will start happening very soon. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to just touch on a subject that we are definitely going to cover in an upcoming show Bitcoin. Bitcoin, the last I checked, is up around $16,000. It's up over like 1,300% since the beginning of the year. And 
energy use is up as well. Bitcoin energy use is up 30%. And everyone is writing about it this week because the Bitcoin energy consumption index showed that its current estimated annual energy use is at around 32 terawatt hours, which is more than most countries in Africa and more than Ireland. And it is only increasing. So the question is, where do you move operations for Bitcoin mining in its current iteration? And some people are looking at places like Iceland with a lot of cheap geothermal. Or hell, you could go up to northern Quebec in the region we talked about with a lot of cheap hydropower. Uh, we have had some posts on our site at GTM looking at whether you could use solar for Bitcoin operations. And there's also a bigger question around how you change mining, um, like how you change the algorithms that provide proof of work. And that takes a lot of computing power in its current iterations. And so there are a lot of um, sort of low power verification of work that take less computing power. So I want to bring this up in another episode and bring a cryptocurrency expert on to talk about why mining takes so much energy because we've talked about the end use applications for blockchain the the framework that enables bitcoin but we haven't talked about mining itself and there this week uh i think it, it, everyone sort of woke up to the reality of the energy use problem and for bitcoin well, I want to know how many Bitcoins you own. I own zero. I actually own zero, but my, my wife <laughs> was too. online looking up crypto kitties the other night, which are based on Ethereum. And you buy and they're, they're a blockchain-based uh, kitty currency that is increasing in value exponentially. They're sort of like pogs or um, other tradables that people who grew up in the 80s and 90s might remember. I, I don't understand it. I just, I really don't. But there's a lot, there's, there are all sorts of new cryptocurrencies emerging. And, you know, companies are developing these cryptocurrencies around tradable items like crypto kitties. So you see these new, like, ecosystems of tradable digital goods, um, everything from emojis to uh, stuff that you can trade in video games to stickers. Um, all this stuff is is tied to the cryptocurrency trend. And so the explosion of all these currencies is certainly going to have energy use impacts. Anyway, I, I don't pretend to understand it fully, and I really want to bring on an expert to rediscuss this issue. So thanks for joining us for this discussion. Catherine Hamilton is my wonderful co-host based in D.C. Good conversation this week, Catherine. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much. And thanks to Jigger, our co-host who had to pop in between meetings for this recording session. Thanks to all of you for listening. You can catch us anywhere on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. Anywhere you get podcasts, please send us a review or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It's greatly helpful. We will catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton. This is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment from Green Tech Media. Thank you.